Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? How do we get the majority of people on a super-duper safe preventative medicine that helps them live a longer, healthier life? And I think if we can get anywhere directly near that, of course, for dogs, maybe for people one day too, it would massively benefit society. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, as ever. Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And as always, I'm coming to you from beautiful Oakland, California. This week, I want to talk not about AI. I want to talk about dogs. Uh, more specifically, let's talk about dogs living a lot longer than they do currently. That is what Celine Haliwa is working on. And she is our guest this week. She is the founder of and CEO of Loyal, which is a startup that has raised $58 million. And what they're doing is developing multiple drugs that uh, she hopes will soon be approved as treatments, really the first, the very first ever treatment specifically for the indication of life extension or health span extension for man's best friend. Now, you may be asking right now, why the hell is she doing that? Why not focus on, you know, people. Well, she's doing that too. The goal here is to target the same biological pathways in dogs that affect humans. Uh, In other words, the same kind of mechanisms that make us kind of old and decrepit and demented or whatever. A lot of those same kind of mechanisms are at work in dogs. So the idea is if you can prove that it works first in canines, then it's easier to transfer it over to humans. That's the idea. I'm sure you have lots of questions about this whole caper, but that's why you're here. Celine has a, a really compelling personal story. I think what she is working on is genuinely really interesting. I mean, who doesn't love dogs, right? Or as we talk about cats, my cat likes lightning. But you can, of course, listen to this and be the judge of what you think about all that you hear in this conversation. So I promise you, you'll get a lot out of this. So without further ado, I give you Celine Haliwa of Loyal to talk about dogs and helping them live a little bit, maybe even a lot longer than they do today. Enjoy. I'm going to start with uh, something that is self-centered. I have a cat. 
His name is Lex Lightning. That's cute. It's very cute. Uh, he was a pandemic cat. We got it when our boys were four and two, maybe. Lex Lightning is a wonderful part of our family, and he's going to be around for a long time, obviously. And I know he's not a dog, but let's talk about, for the Lex Lightnings of the world or the Fidos of the world, what the world looks like today and what you're trying to do. I totally thought you were going to ask me when we're going to start working on cat aging drugs. <laughs> that is the number one question I get. And actually, is it? Have a, oh, yeah. All the time. And we have actually controversial disclosure. We might have more cat people at Loyal than we do dog people. Oh. It turns out a lot of people who work in animal health are cat people. I don't know why. Correlation, causation. Don't ask me. Well, before we get into the meat of that, that leads me to just, I have to ask, what is like the weirdest request you've had for like pet longevity? I have somebody who's really advocating for us to do bunny longevity. Bunny longevity. Strong advocation. Yeah. Interesting. Horses is one I've heard, but the problem with horses is that they are really big. Yeah. So that'd be a lot of drug. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I've got a lot of advocates for that. Really, the biggest is dogs and cats. Like the cat yeah. people are insistent. I've said I'll do it after we get the, or I will consider doing it. I should not make any promises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like a good politician. Uh, <laughs> I will consider doing it after we get the dog drug to market. It's actually just very difficult to give a cat a pill. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the studies are not nearly as simple, <laughs> among right. other things. Right, 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 right. Dogs are less discerning for sure. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, what? give the elevator pitch and, you know, let's assume Lex is a dog. How long might <laughs> Lex be able to live or, you know, see his life extended? Yeah. So, I'm the founder and CEO of Loyal. We're developing drugs for dogs intended to extend their lifespan and health span. So, we're not developing drugs for any specific disease as yeah. which you know most drugs that you would buy any drug that you would buy today is you know on the label it says take for you know whatever specific cause our drugs are instead targeting or uh, intended to target the ways by which a dog ages unhealthily over time to slow that rate of aging to extend their lifespan so kind of the other way to think about an aging drug Maybe the like less sexy way, but I think the honestly accurate way to think about it is a preventive medicine for multiple age-related diseases yeah. at the same time, which preventive medicine is a thing that we already know a lot about. It just hasn't – it's historically been focused on one specific disease, aging drugs, or many at the same time. And this presumably is because um, we've had a lot of longevity folks on this podcast over the last – especially the last probably – two years. And it sounds like what you are doing is similar to what the kind of the, the general approach is to kind of geroscience or whatever of thinking of aging itself as something to be treated, because there's all of there's some underlying biological mechanisms that result in all kinds of age related diseases. So you're kind of targeting the root cause rather than the results of aging. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. Age related diseases are called as such because Generally speaking, you develop them over time, right? Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, arthritis, wrinkles, all of these things, you're generally not born with them, uh, you develop them. So while you might get the diagnosis when you're 60, 70, or 80, you've been developing that disease 
for decades. Uh, we are unfortunately probably right now having the predecessors of the diseases that will be diagnosed with in decades from now. And so the idea of an aging drug is to target and treat those drivers now to prevent or delay or reduce the severity of the disease if and when it does occur. And so where are you currently in terms of development of the drug? Are you in trials? I mean, we're running along. So the company's been around for three years. I incorporated it end of 2019, early 2020. Um, so great timing <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, world events that have been able to focus yep. for the last three years. And we are running towards our first drug intended for dog lifespan extension being on market in 2025, in early 2025. Um, so we've shown aging and age-associated condition improvement in dogs treated with our drug. Is this in clinical trials? Both, yeah. So we actually just completed recruitment of a 60-dog clinical study here in the U.S. with dogs across the country. We're ramping up for a much larger study that's starting at the end of this year that'll be looking at lifespan and disease incidence. So yeah, we've been doing a lot of work on that to try to capture how dogs age and if our drug impacts it. And what are the early results in terms of uh, health span? Presumably it's health span and lifespan extension. I mean, obviously you've been around for three years and it's hard to like if you're talking about meaningfully extending health or life that you know, the results are still to be determined, I guess, in terms of just how effective it is. Totally. So lifespan is interesting. It's paradoxically a very easy and very challenging endpoint. It's easy because it's binary. Dogs alive, dogs dead. It's challenging because as you just mentioned, it takes a long time to measure it. So we don't have lifespan data yet. We're not going to have that for a while. But health span is paradoxically easier and harder. Mm -hmm. In a dog, you can see biological aging in about six months, so the natural decline of a dog on kind of well-understood aging. This is the whole dog years thing. Yeah, I mean, if you, they just have a shorter lifespan, right? Especially when you go to the big dogs, um, which one of our drug programs is focused on. Mm. You can just see physiological aging much faster, so you can see if an intervention impacts it. Right. But the challenge of measuring health span is that it's far from consensus as to what health span is. Is this marker or that marker relevant? Is it a disease? Is it health span broad? How do you quantify it? How do you quantify how a pet parent feels their dog is acting? That's a lot, a lot of aging is, you know, I have my 10-year-old Roddy sleeping behind me. I One of the reasons I know she's aged is because she's very low energy and she sleeps a lot and she plays for five minutes and then yeah. passes out for three hours afterwards. How the hell do you quantify that? And so our solution is we look at a lot of different measures and drivers of health span and try to put together a holistic picture where even if you don't believe or think there's scientific validity in one measure, you're probably mm. going to think that at least one of the many measures we're looking at is relevant. Um, and so far, our drug has shown positive benefits on multitudes. But that's been one of the big challenges what we're doing at Loyal is because nobody's gotten a drug approved for lifespan and health span extension before, we have to figure out the path, which is both a blessing and a, an honor, but also, I mean, it's hard. There's a reason yeah. why nobody's done it before. Yeah. No, I was going to say, so, I mean, in a previous life, I also covered pharma. And so I know well the difficulty of getting a drug from development through clinical testing, approval, and onto the market. And the kind of the old rule of thumb was a billion dollars in 10 years to get a single drug to, you know, mm -hmm. to that whole life cycle. But also that includes a lot of like 
trial and error and failure with other drugs before you choose the one, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I presume the bar is lower for animals. Like what does that path look like for treatments for dogs? Yeah. So it's interesting. That's actually a common misconception that it's easier. It's not easier as in the FDA doesn't have a lower bar, so to speak, but it is easier air quotes for those who can't see this beautiful image we have of you chugging coffee and (laughs) me having a bed head. It's easier in that to what I mentioned earlier, you can see the physiological changes caused by aging much faster. Right. Right. And so it's it's much more feasible to run a clinical study. It's also easier, quote unquote, in other ways in that to, you know, your previous reference of 10 years and a billion dollars. It's about depending on what you include in the costs. It's, you know, let's say it can be anywhere from 10 to 30 million dollars, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less to get an animal drug approved. So on market and selling and the success rate is actually much higher too. This might be in part because hmm. people don't try to develop animal drugs for really hard things like Parkinson's, right. but it's also because it's just easier to run early studies. And in humans, the fundamental challenge is that you test things in mice. You're like, oh, maybe this is working for cancer. Like, spoiler alert, we've cured cancer in mice many, many times, as very rarely translated into people. Yeah. Versus in dogs, you don't really have that challenge, right? You can test something in a beagle if you would like to, or even just go early into companion dogs if the drug is safe and you have a compelling evidence on that. And then you're commercializing it for dogs too. From a financial perspective, from a logistical perspective, it's easier but from a regulatory perspective i mean for example anything that we have the pills right here yeah these are have to be manufactured at very similar standards which a human drug would have to be manufactured it's actually the time restricted to being on market is actually the manufacturing approval because it's had such a high bar like you have to be able to take this don't do not take this but you have to be able to take it (laughs) and bad things not happen to you right before i move on just to circle back to the mouse point so we've cured cancer in mice I did not know this. I mean, it depends on like what your definition of cure it is, right? But we've, we've shown a lot of positive impacts on many very complicated diseases mm. in mice, right? And this often leads to those kind of headlines you'll read in like Time Magazine or something or New York Times being like, yeah. oh, science is major breakthrough. We could, perhaps we're going to have a va- you know cancer vaccine in two years and then uh-huh. you never hear from it again. Yep, exactly. And part of that is just because it takes forever. But another part of it is that mice predominantly die of cancer for a multitude of reasons, but partially just because, you know, lab mice are very, very inbred. They don't really have immune systems. They don't develop age-related diseases like we do. The dog, the companion dog especially, (laughs) Della's glaring at me. She's like, are you about to talk about me? (laughs) Um, The companion dog is, you know, one of the reasons, one of the metatheses of Loyal is that if we can positively impact the aging trajectory, the health span and lifespan of a companion dog. That's very biologically relevant to people because dogs develop the same age-laid diseases at approximately the same time in their lifespan. The dogs die of cancer. My previous sweetheart of a dog, Wolfie, died of breast cancer. Mm. Obviously, you know, a common disease in humans. Dogs get dementia. Dogs get osteoarthritis. Um, dogs get, you know, immune disorders. The really the only kind of big, major age-related disease that dogs do not die at at a rate that humans do 
is cardiac disease. And that's probably, you know, environmental factors are a big driver of that. Diabetes? Dogs do get diabetes. But again, a lot of these things where it's obviously there's different types of diabetes, but things where there's a big environmental or a driver, like, for example, like your diet, a dog doesn't have the option to go, you know, to Whole eat McDonald's foods. every night. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah, hopefully there there are Whole Foods uh, type. I was actually right before this looking at a very bougie dog food. Um, but in general, like my dog is having the same thing every single day. Yeah. So those environmental factors are not as relevant. Right, right, right. So why, how, you know? <laughs> <laughs> why or how? Different questions. Uh, yeah. So let's go back. So where are you from? It's Celine Haliwa. Is that right? That's yeah. Hali- Haliwa. Nice. Haliwa. Haliwa, yeah. Haliwa. Um, but you said you're from Texas? Yeah. So I was born in Austin, Texas, but I'm first generation American. So my mom immigrated from Rabat, from Morocco. Yeah. And uh, hence the name. And again, man, all the listeners are missing this, but hence the great skin tone. <laughs> it's all the Moroccan blood. And what was your mom doing in uh, Rabat? I mean, she just grew up there. So my entire mother's side of the family is from there. So we lived there for a very long time, or my family lived there for generations. But they left because my mom's family is Jewish. And at the time, there was a lot of issues between the kind of religious groups in Morocco. And so my mom actually got thrown on a plane at, you know, 18 or 19 to our family in, uh, in New York. Oh, wow. And some like faraway cousins. And just stayed in the U.S. afterwards. And that, my, my family doesn't have any roots in Morocco anymore, um, which is a shame. I would love to like see that. But now they yeah. kind of, everyone's scattered. And then my father immigrated from Berlin, from Germany. Oh, wow. Under much more voluntary circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when he was in his early 20s. Got you. So German dad, Moroccan mom end up in Texas. And then studied in Sweden and England. <laughs> and it came back. Got you. So you grew up in Austin? I grew up in Austin, yeah. I did an undergrad there. Okay. So what did you do before trying to give dogs eternal life? And I know it's not eternal life, but you, you know. <laughs> so I did an undergrad in neuroscience. I started a PhD at Oxford in the economics of a theoretically curative gene therapy for a a certain genetic blindness disorder. I was really interested Mm. in healthcare systems and the economic incentivization of preventative medicine, of which gene therapy was really interesting because you'd have to give this very early in the patient's life. But the payoff, so to speak, from a healthcare perspective was decades later because the blindness disorder would only become severe in the 40s. I loved Oxford. I wanted to stay. I thought I was going to stay in England forever, actually. It's uh, one of the best places I've lived. Are your parents academics? Well, my mom would actually probably get irritated if I said that. My mom has a PhD (laughs) in public health, (laughs) Uh, but she doesn't practice. And then my dad's a carpenter. Right. Were you like the typical kind of science nerd kid or were you just... No, I've gone to college for art school. What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, I was bottom 10 of my high school. Just did not care about much. Then gone to college for art school and then... Kind of long story short, I did a internship shadowing with my family in Germany at a neuro-oncology clinic, and I met a number of patients who were getting kind of the worst diagnosis of their life. Mm. And at 
until that point, I kind of always thought the adults could fix things, right? Like yeah, yeah. that's yeah. we have like the ability to fix problems if they occur. And the fact that there are these honestly stream of patients that every day we're getting these diagnoses, and that the very intelligent, well intentioned doctors could not do anything for them, no matter what, no matter how much effort, care, money they put into it, you know, their fate was decided. Just something about that just really broke my brain. Mm. I felt like that we didn't have, I still kind of feel like we don't have free will in many ways if your biology can just throw your life upside yeah. down. And so I switched from art school to neuroscience because I was like, okay, neuroscience, like A, brain diseases are very difficult to treat yeah. in general. And I was just very interested in the brain in general. And you can't actually do that, I think, at UT anymore. Because they never would have accepted me into the neuroscience program. You're like, I, yeah, like I got in an art, but now I'm going to just slide into to neuroscience. Well, even worse, I had a full scholarship for art. Oh. I never would have gotten that for neuroscience. I mean, my GPA was terrible. Right. Um, but I, I switched. They let me keep my scholarship and it all worked out from there. Your GPA in, in high school was terrible just because you weren't interested? Yeah, I, I'm like very obsessive and passion driven and i was at those times that personality trait was on different things yeah. right and then i kind of for better or for worse like radically prioritize on whatever i'm obsessed about and so i've now been radically prioritized on this idea of aging and aging drug development for years it's where i'm going to spend the rest of my my mm -hmm. life but i wasn't previously i didn't know about it right like i i was just a little bit slower developing which i think is honestly i'm thankful for it because a lot of my friends tried so hard in high school and then kind of were burned out by the time they got to college. I got all of that out of my system in high school. Right. And then I just worked my booty off yeah. for years, for years and years and years when it honestly really mattered. Right. Got you. So you switch to neuroscience, you graduate, and then you go to Oxford to study economics. Mm -hmm. In service of what? If you if you were kind of now like neuroscience is the th my thing, and then you go study economics, what's the connection there? So I was really interested in the economics of preventive medicine. Right, right, right. In part because of my parents' situation, we didn't really have great healthcare when I was a kid. So yeah. when I was eighteen or nineteen, I had tens of thousands of medical debt from like nothing major. It's just like you go to the ER once in the U.S. and, and it's, it's it good can luck. financially ruin you. I know, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, my, yeah, it was bad. Uh, my mom didn't have health insurance until Obamacare. And if your dad's a carpenter, then, yeah, then you don't have group insurance. Yeah. So, yeah. We, no, it wasn't great, no. Yeah. I mean, the like, the deductibles alone can be a lot. Totally. Candidly, one of the reasons I went to the UK, and actually similar to what we were talking about with Sweden, was that I was really curious what life is like in a single-payer, more socialized healthcare system. It's so funny you should say that because I ended up living in the UK for a long time, over a decade. And then I met my wife randomly on a plane and then she ended up moving there and we ended up having a child, our first child in the UK. And the whole experience for her of being growing up in the States and it all being so transactional and so expensive and whatnot, and then just walking into an NHS office and then walking out and just having it all just be a it was just such a foreign experience from beginning mm -hmm. to end. And there's things wrong with the mm -hmm. NHS, of course, but she was just like, it was kind of mind blowing for her just that how different it was, especially growing up in the States where you think like, this is just the way it is. What I didn't realize is that you have 
anxiety about getting ill that has nothing to do with the fact that you are physically ill. It yeah. has to do with the medical bills. Yeah. And I, I remember I broke my, I cracked my hand in Sweden, like three weeks in or something to moving there. And I had to go to the ER and I was so anxious. And I was totally. like, why am I anxious? It's a hand. I'm going to be fine. I was like, oh, I'm scared of the medical bill I'm going to get. Because if I'd done that in the US, at least at the time, it would have cost me so much. And like, what, this is, you know, not to skip ahead, but like one of the things that's been really cool about running my own company is at least like within Loyal, I've been able to create an ecosystem where my team and my team's family doesn't have to feel that. Like everybody mm -hmm. has platinum health insurance, which is a, kind of the top kind of health insurance to get. We cover 99% of the premium because we're not allowed to cover 100%. We cover it for their families. Wow. And that was really, really important for me going in because I was like, yeah, if we have to hire, you know, three less people to be able to afford this, that's fine. Like it just was such a driver of my childhood, this health and anxiety, mm -hmm. which is probably where this interest in health came from, even though I wasn't like definitionally interested in it. Yeah, right, 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 right. Because it was just such a driver. But yeah, that was why I went to the UK because I was really interested in, I, at that point I already had like kind of gotten exposed to aging, but an aging drug, the way I've always thought about it is a preventative medicine or a medicine to delay certain diseases. And preventive medicine has like very interesting economics. You know, in the US it's not, this is super high level. It's not super economically incentivized, but there's a huge willingness to pay. In the UK, very economically incentivized. Yeah. You know, it, the NHS is to pay for you now and in 30 years from now. But on average, the willingness or ability to pay per patient can be less. And so gene therapy was kind of an extreme example of that because yeah. a blindness disorder is very expensive for a healthcare system. But a gene therapy can be a million dollars a shot. And that's also very expensive on a short term. And a patient can, you know, God forbid, get like hit by a car the day after they get the million dollar gene therapy. And so yeah. I thought it was an interesting kind of proof of concept. And in more meta, I also went there because... I, I mean, I wanted to move to, to Europe that didn't last super long, in part because it brexited like right after I like, <laughs> arrived and I, I'm on an EU passport. But <laughs> oh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you leave before you finished your PhD or what happened? Yes. So I dropped out about, I think, like six to 12 months before I was going to get my DPhil. And for kind of a couple of reasons, I so I was spending time with uh, this woman named Laura Deming at the Longevity Fund. Laura's been on the pod a couple times. Yeah. So I cold emailed Laura when I was in Oxford to go and work for her. Um, and she like gave me a two-week internship and it offered me a job straight afterwards. Wow. So for just pause for people who don't remember Laura, she's been on this pod, I think at least twice. And she started this thing called, she was a Teal Fellow. She started this thing called the Longevity Fund where she is investing in all these like anti-aging startups, but she was also like a kid genius and was doing all of this at like 18 and 19 years old and whatnot. Now she's in her 20s, I think, but still, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So she offered me an internship and I was just kind of, I wanted to understand how medicines get funded. Venture capital is a huge aspect of that. She's yeah. also a huge, huge driver of the aging field. She kind of helped modernize it into what it is today, for which I'm very thankful. So I left to go work with her. And then also because I just had a lot of challenges. I mean, I've written about this, like talked about this publicly, but I had challenges with some of the, let's call it like the hierarchical and conservative nature that you can have in Oxford, especially around gender dynamics and age dynamics. I mean, we can get as deep or not as you wanted to that, but like, what do you mean? At a high level, and again, I've talked about this yeah. um, 
publicly. I had a harassment incident with my supervisor and also more broadly, or one of my supervisors. I had multiple and the rest were amazing, but unfortunately, Bad Apple ruins the bunch. And then just the experience of going through the bureaucratic, conservative, old white dude, hierarchical churn at oxford just turned me off so much to the entire thing where it actually kind of broke my brain a little bit i was just like all of this is bullshit none of this matters like, out, this is basically all... yeah because also i do know I, that I, like living yeah. especially coming from america the uk i mean you know you think at least on the surface we're all so similar because we share the language and all that stuff but you kind of realize it's actually there's some pretty fundamental differences and especially at an old centuries old institution like you're talking about. Yeah. There's some pretty ingrained stuff there, I would imagine. There was a time when I got in, like I was going to like talk about what I had been dealing with and I got in trouble because I skipped levels. Like I didn't talk to the person one level above oh, me. Oh, you jumped the, the queue. Two. You can't jump the queue. I jumped the queue. the queue. You cannot jump yeah. the queue. That is like, that is cardinal sin. And I remember being like, I'm sorry, this is what you're mad about? <laughs> I just told you all of these things and this is what you're mad about? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it was not funny, great. it's I, terrible, but it's, yeah. I, in retrospect, it's kind of like, it's 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 like a it's like a tragic comedy. But yeah, I honestly, at, at a certain point, I was just like, I can't. Like, I just, I just couldn't. I, I don't right. even know how to describe the like, physical feeling. I just got on a plane. Like, I didn't even tell anybody. <laughs> which isn't like a great move i would not recommend doing that but i don't know i just i just hit some limit and i got on a plane and i flew to san francisco and i never came back wow so how long were you there in total two-ish years okay something like that yeah two and a half i don't know there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you'd been in touch with Laura. She offers you a gig. So you're just like, F this, I'm out. And then fly to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And what was the plan? Or did you have one? Um, No, I honestly thought my best way to contribute to the field would be facilitating Laura. 
because in many ways we're very complimentary. She's a genius, as you know, Um, very visionary. I'm more like operational, people focused, the feelings of getting things done. And so we balance each other very well. So I worked with her for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. And it's kind of a year and a half into it that I started having the idea for Loyal. Why dogs? <laughs> well, I love animals. I grew up with 15 cats, four dogs, squirrels that we rescued, grackles, which are just like hold birds. On, hold on. <laughs> 15 cats? Yeah, we had a bunch of rescue animals, rescue cats. Like, Oh, so you guys were like one of those families? So they're just yeah, like, oh. We just a... adopted. Right. And my parents are vegetarian. I'm vegetarian. I don't know. I'll have like a cheeky like cod every so often, but like never eaten like real meat uh, in my life. In your life? Mm-mm. Never had beef. Never had any. I mean, I might have like, I've like accidentally eaten pork, but never intentionally. This is a total yeah. aside. I also have a lot of the cultivated meat folks on the pod over the years. Would you eat a cultivated meat burger? Like down the street, we have sci-fi foods and they're they're like making like... Oh, I love Josh. Yeah, so <laughs> Josh, Josh, is, Josh has been on the pod. But like they're creating a burger and they just... It's all from a punch biopsy of a live, an animal still mooing around in Ohio. Yeah, I totally would. For me, being vegetarian is an ethics thing first and foremost. I just don't believe in killing another creature for to sustain myself. Right. Um, I also really like cows. I think they're super sweet and cute, and I really want a cow. It's like my new thing is I really want a cow. It's like my goal in life. You have just made history for those podcasts. I've never thought anybody would say, I really want a cow as a life aspiration. I would love to have a cow. They're so sweet. They're so kind and so docile. They're like the dogs <laughs> of the agricultural world. I really, really want a cow. <laughs> Um, but no, I would actually love, I want to try bacon. I want to try pork belly. Um, cause apparently it's super good. I want to try a steak. I would love to try Like They don't smell bad to me. I just yeah, won't just, eat them. Yeah, They're like, it's gotcha. be like eating this mug, right? It's just like not a thing I do. Right. So you like dogs. You're working with Laura for a year and a half, like looking at all these like interesting science and kind of startups happening in this world. Liking dogs and seeing what's happening, that does not a startup make. So how did you kind of like, what was there a moment where you're like, okay, there's something here or I can actually have a go with this? So the initial idea, I never thought I'd start a company, never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. The the whole like meta fun story of like me learning what Silicon Valley is and the culture Mm -hmm. of this place. It is so weird and so different. And it worships people that you never hear about if you like, leave the radius, the five mile, 10 mile radius of the city. It took me a long time to learn the culture. And it's very opposite yes. from Oxford in basically yes. every way. I remember Laura used to get mad at me because I'd say like, <laughs> dear sir, da 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 was my very best wishes. And she's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, rewrite it. <laughs> yes. um, so that, that was a brutal. But I initially started from a frustration in that almost every single company that pitched us, if not every company, had like the same general arc, which is like, oh, we've extended lifespan and health span in mice. This is great. It's amazing. Over and over again. You know, slide three, FDA is evil. Aging isn't a disease. Boo-hoo. Therefore, we're going to develop this aging drug for this thing completely unrelated to aging, but is, you know, mechanistically similar. But it would often be like a niche 
monogenic pediatric disorder, which is like a great thing to develop a drug for, but not aging in the slightest. It just happens to be mechanistically similar. Right. But don't worry, we'll also show an aging benefit, but then on slide 20, exit path, it's to get acquired by a big pharma like Pfizer before yeah. the drugs even And a lot market. of com- to your point, a lot of companies in the aging world are doing that exact path of like, all right, well, FDA doesn't view aging as an affliction in itself. So we're going to take an age-related disease or something that is driven by the, the similar mechanisms, prove that that works, and then kind of back into, oh, by the way, you can also create, you know, use this as an aging drug. And that's how they get to market, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I just find it, like, I think there is no one right way. But I think one of the core things that we need to have in the new field is we need to have a regulatory path for a drug to be approved for what we are developing these drugs for, which is aging and lifespan and health span extension. And so I became obsessed with this problem initially in humans. Spoiler alert, moved away from that. But initially in humans, how do you develop a drug explicitly for lifespan extension, explicitly for health span extension, and not for anything else? And the conclusion I came to is that, as we talked about earlier, logistically incredibly, incredibly difficult for a multitude of reasons. And you probably would need a billion dollars plus to be able to do it, which I I don't know, I was like 24 at the time. Even now, if you asked me to raise a billion dollars, I'd be pretty nervous. But back then, I was like, like, no way, right? Yeah, Yeah, I'll go walk on the moon (laughs) Um, instead or something, yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I've always been a big dog person, so I've kind of always like inherently knew this. But I found a paper that was talking about the abnormally short lifespan of big dogs. So a bigger a dog is pound by pound, actually the shorter the incremental expected lifespan of that dog is. Basically, that's a correlation that's pretty clear. Very strong. Very strong. And on the extremes, it's about a 2x difference. So a small dog like a Chihuahua might live 16 to 18 years, while a Great Dane might live, you know, six to nine years. And that Dane is going gray at age four, right? So their whole aging process is compressed. I mean, my dog Della... Oh, who's like nine or 10. We don't know for sure. She's a, a Roddy about 85 pounds. She's fully gray in the face and like quite old. A 10 year old dog of a smaller breed would not be as, yeah. you know, slow as she is. So this is interesting because in general, in the space of mammals, the bigger an animal is on average, the lifespan, the longer the lifespan is. So a mouse will live, you know, two ish years, two and a half years. Humans live, you know, 80-ish years. Whales live much longer. Elephants live, you know, a long time. And so it's weird that you see this inversing of this in dogs. And it's especially weird that within the same species that you see such a huge differential. You don't see that in any other species. You don't see short people living double the lifespan of tall people, right? right? I hope not. I'm (laughs) 6'4". I kind (laughs) of hope so. I'm (laughs) 5'6". But don't worry. We're, yeah, are, exactly. we're, it's going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Um, but long story short, I dug into what's causing or what drives the size of dogs. And it centered around actually a very well understood aging pathway. So basically, this pathway that's shown similar effects in everything from C. elegans to mice and some correlation data on people actually seems to be the driver of what determines the size of a dog. So the thesis that I had is that, oh, dogs seem to have a genetic disorder. Big dogs seem to have a genetic Mm -hmm. disorder for accelerated aging 
we could treat this with a drug relatively simply, right? Because it's a genetic disorder, you know what's driving it and you can develop something to inhibit it to extend our lifespan. And like, this would be a, like a, a harmonious way to do it because right. it's something that's like very well understood. It's a problem statement, big dog short lifespan, but it's also what I want to do, which is a drug that's not for big dogs getting cancer earlier, but it's for big dogs lifespan and quality of life in that lifespan. You mentioned pathway just, and I think you correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of a terminology referring to some kind of specific genetic misfiring that is leading to this disorder in big dogs. Is that right? So at a high level, all dogs are born approximately the same size, but big dogs grow at a much faster rate and therefore become much larger within that puppyhood phase, yeah. within that puberty phase. And biologically, what seems to happen is the things that drive these dogs to grow so quickly in adolescence doesn't fully turn off afterwards and seems to drive, and again, this is like very high level, but seems to drive these dogs actually aging at a faster rate. So a Great Dane seems to age 1.8, 2x-ish faster Mm. at a molecular level, at a cellular level than a smaller dog. Because somewhere that, that, no one turns off that switch internally. It doesn't turn off, yeah. Right. And the other important thing here to understand is that most dog breeds, probably every dog breed, has some sort of genetically associated disease due to historical inbreeding, right? So German Shepherds will get hip dysplasia. Hip dysplasia is genetically associated. Goldens get cancer, two specific forms of cancer at a very high rate. And that's because the way we created dog breeds is by inbreeding. They bred dogs that look similar, that behave similarly. They would breed within litters. People didn't understand. I mean, they were inbreeding themselves, right? (laughs) They're especially inbreeding their dogs. And so it created this genetic inherited disorders or genetically associated disorders that, you know, every dog breed has. And the thesis of the company is that the big dog short lifespan dimorphism is genetically associated due to historical inbreeding, and therefore we can fix it. So that's a super interesting idea. So you were 24 at the time? Yeah, I think 24. Yeah, Yeah. something like that. So I presume Laura helped you out a lot because she's got her own fund and she knows kind of everybody in the field. But how was that process of actually trying to raise money and start a company? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about biotech is you can't do anything without money. Yeah. Right. Like, what am I going to do? Like, if one study is half a million dollars, I don't know. I don't have a half a million dollars now. I definitely didn't have it then. (laughs) Right. And you also have to hire people, right? Like, I can have the idea, the concept, but even with my scientific training, I am not a biopharma executive, or at least I wasn't at that time. So I had to hire people who had decades of experience and people who have decades of experience Mm -hmm. tend to have families, mortgages, Mm -hmm. financial uh, responsibilities. It's not like in tech tech where you have all these 21 year olds coming out of Stanford, happy to work for, you know, pennies as long as they get equity will like work 24 hours. Like that that game doesn't work in biotech. You need the best possible person for the role. If you want to maximize the probability for success, and while, of course, I understand that you can't pay, you know, Pfizer salaries, they sure as hell are not going to take, like, some tiny tech salary. No. So I actually was, for a very long time, embarrassed to say the phrase dog longevity. It's kind of ridiculous. Now I kind of lean into the ridiculousness of it. Um, <laughs> but at that time, a little bit less. I don't know. I just became totally obsessed with the idea. I knew it needed to exist. And I didn't think anybody else would start it in the way that I wanted to do it. Hmm. And so... I was the blessing of being naive and not understanding 
how difficult the thing I was about to embark on was, I was like, well, I'm going to go out and raise $5 million for this. Like, I don't know. I guess I just thought it was such an obviously good idea that, of course. <laughs> Everybody would be like, can I give you 10? <laughs> <laughs> um, and Laura was really supportive in this, too. And I had a, yeah. another investor, Greg Rosen, who really kind of. Um, he had worked with me before I started the raise and like really convinced me that like I could be a founder, right. that I had the chops, that this was a good idea and that there was a market and like all these other things that we needed to do. So I went out and talked to probably like 130 people, um, had a 10% success rate. Yeah, that's not, I mean, first time, that's not terrible. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing and that deck was horrendous, but, yeah. and honestly, like all of the guts of the of what we said we were going to do was actually totally incorrect, which we found out the minute we hired people who were experienced in biopharma. <laughs> but the thesis was right. And right. the thesis of what we're doing has never changed. Big dog, short lifespan. Take what we learn to dogs, translate to people. Right. Like, it's always been the same idea. And we did it. We raised $5 million, And now we've raised like $57 million in total, which is crazy to me. Mm. And we have a full team that's... You know, the team itself has been responsible for already 37 FDA-approved drugs, so probably wow. 10x more development drugs. And we're not a big team. We're like 45, 50 people. I'm always fascinated by, especially first-time founders, getting people to join. The way I think about it is like you're like, you know, Christopher Columbus, like in the port in Portugal or where I think it was in Spain, but I think he actually left from Portugal. Anyway, wherever he left from. But he's the dude out there being like, come on this boat. Trust me, we're not going to fall off the end of the earth. <laughs> and you're trying to get people who are, as you say, really well established, know what they're doing, know a bunch of stuff you don't know and trying to convince them to come. How how was that process of actually trying to get like these superstars that you're going to need to make this happen? Paradoxically, building something hard can be easier mm. in many ways because it's a really big vision mm. and there's very few places. Like if I convince somebody that dogs first to extend human lifespan and that you could extend dog lifespan and that people would want this for their dogs, if I can convince them on that thesis, there's really nowhere else I can go. Like there's like one very excellent, there's a couple of very excellent academic groups, but they're not developing commercial products. And there's a couple of like companies doing it, but not in the way we're doing it. And otherwise, that's it. And so it's like, honestly, the nice thing about scientists and people who work in biopharma in general is they're super mission motivated. And so I gave them a place where they could work on this problem holistically. Right. And the only thing I'm emotionally attached to is developing a drug for lifespan extension. Right. Like, that's what I've always said. Like, I don't give a shit what the drug is, how it works. It just needs to be a drug that's developed explicitly for lifespan and health span extension. And so that, like, Freedom, in some ways, is almost like an academic group, right? Because it's just mm. a, a core thesis that we're running on. And everything else is to the scientific judgment of the team members we've had and that we do have. And I think that's actually been really good for us. And, and also, it's, like, it's nice because I don't delude myself in thinking that I should be the CSO of Loyal. I'm technical, but I'm not, you know... I don't have ego around that, right? Like I see my role as facilitating the team who have experience in yeah. working with the FDA and who have experience in manufacturing drugs to scale and have experience building engineering teams and have experience building creative teams and all of these things. And so in some ways it gives a lot more independence than I think a lot of these people have had previously. Have you had any like tech billionaire types being like, I, uh, you know, who just like are personally super into the mission and because I know that like in longevity, certainly in the in the Bay Area, 
it's almost culty. There's like a few people who are like really into this idea to living of living to 150 or 200 or longer or whatever. And they're like quietly putting lots of money into it. Is there a similar vibe with what you're doing or no? So our primary funders are Silicon Valley venture funds, not yeah. tech billionaires. Yeah. We do have a, a number of tech billionaires in the in the company for smaller checks. We also have Lego Lost, <laughs> which is my favorite fun fact. We mostly went venture funds in part because at the time I didn't have a network. And so yeah. like, I mean, I guess I kind of do now, but like I, I definitely didn't when I was raising for the company. I didn't pattern match super well to like what those people looked for at the time. And that's a whole other narrative we could probably talk a whole thing about, which is like pattern yeah. matching in the Valley. But also, like, Loyal is very boring and practical in certain ways. We're not doing crazy mechanisms of action. We're not doing yeah. epigenetic reprogramming or gene therapy. Or, like I, Again, we're like, what is the safest, most boring drug that we can develop that we think will extend lifespan? It's a preventative medicine. We're not going for immortality. We're not going for radical lifespan extension. We're not trying to upheave the entire veterinary community. Like the thing that we are radically innovating on is developing a drug, commercializing a drug, and hopefully finding you know product market fit or whatever on a drug for lifespan and health span extension and bringing that to patients. Everything else we're actually very consensus on, and I think that's important, right? You can't you can't do something as radical as kind of creating a new product category and then also die on all these other hills. It's just a very different narrative that I think a lot of others have where they're like this drug has reversed aging in mice by so much and you mr 70 year old billionaire will also be able to have reverse aging like i will never make that promise or claim or even hypothesis to somebody because it's not what we're trying to do so just before i let you go because i know we've kind of gone over a little bit but i just want to get clear on so have you guys zeroed in on a drug candidate and is that what you are testing and like what stage of trial are you in in terms of like again you i think you mentioned 2025 earlier but just what is that where are you right now in terms of the potential treatment and then also that timeline or testing so we have three drugs in development one of which we haven't announced yet um but excited to do that hopefully relatively soon but two that are in full-on clinical development the first one which is the one i have sitting here. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things change. We're obviously cannot, I mean, we've never made a dime of revenue. We won't until if and when the FDA gives us approval, we can't sell until we have FDA approval, which is really important. We didn't want to go for a supplement. Like a lot of this is that it's an objectively right. validated drug for this. Yeah. Um, but it means we've been working on this for over four years and obviously have never sold anything. This drug is projected to be on market if everything goes well 2025 and in the other one the year afterwards if you're in the u.s and listening we are currently recruiting for a, a lifespan and health span extension study for this drug that will be uh, run in sites across the u.s for big dogs in particular or any dog no so this will actually be for dogs of um, nearly any size and any breed who are older so you can register interest for that study on our website. It's run by a partner veterinary clinics for a scientific validity, but we'll be able to connect people to the right clinic if there's one in their area. So say everything goes swimmingly, that's on the market in 2025. How would it work and what would it achieve in terms of lifespan extension? The TLDR is I don't want to make a claim on lifespan or health span extension until we've run the study, but... 
what we've thought about it is I think the thing that'll be most important for this product, which is going to be focusing on older dogs, is the health span extension. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, one of the ways we quantify quality of life. So there's two there's two high level ways. One is event reported. One is owner reported. Event reported is very focused on things like diseases the dog has yeah. or has developed, how far along diseases are, etc. Clinical signs. And then the pet parent looks at things like how comfortable does the dog seem, how active is the dog, how engaged mentally is the dog. And I think that's going to be a big driver is like, if the drug works, it's around these things of you can, you, the owner of the dog can objectively say that this dog seems to be like acting in a more youthful way, so to speak, relative to what it was previously. And then lifespan, I think actually is a secondary order effect from that, right? So it's that the health span benefit, the quality of life benefit, the aging benefit that you get in a shorter term, like think like within like six, 12 months. If you look at, again, the aging trajectory of a dog, if that durates, that leads to the dog living a longer time because you're stretching out those healthy, mm. what otherwise would have been. But yeah, sorry, I can't like make like claims yeah, until yeah, we have no, the data because I, I don't want to get thrown into FDA jail. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But at a high level, that's what we're looking at. Got you. And when would they start taking it theoretically? So in the end, a prescription is a vet's discretion. But the like broad eligibility criteria will be for older dogs for the drug, and then for the big dog short lifespan, it'll be a bit younger because uh, it's more of a preventative mechanism. Got you. It's twenty twenty three. In terms of longevity science, because you're obviously very steeped in what is going on right now, where do you think this goes? Like, so I'm forty six. I had Eric Verdon from the Buck Institute on here. He's great. He's yeah, he's fantastic. And he's like, you know, basically, I can't remember what it was, but he's like, you know, the ki- half the kids being born today are going to be centenarians, for example. Or it was something like that or like a lot of them will be living to your 90s super healthily, maybe into your 100s super healthily. That's completely within our grasp. How do you think about all of this as you're seeing the kind of science develop real time? So the Buck Institute is amazing. One of the things they focus on is demographic yep. impacts, right? As a institute that's supposed to be that's doing early research to support the broader scientific community. The vision I have is that just like how nearly every pharmaceutical company today has a cardiology division, a neurodegenerative disorder division, an oncology division, a genetic disorders, an infectious disorders division, they will have an aging division Mm -hmm. i think it's going to be a class of medicines that is as large or larger than oncology one day i don't think any one company is going to own it just like there's god knows how many companies working on oncology as there should be there should be more yeah i don't think there's any one company that will ever own aging i think that's actually one of the biggest uh misconceptions both investors and general people have like oh this one company is going to take it i don't think i think even if loyal executes perfectly we shouldn't that would be bad for the world there are so many ways to drug this incredibly complex mechanism. Um, so I think aging drugs will become a class of drugs that is very broadly used. Yeah. And the metaphor I use for humans is statins, right? A statin is a daily preventative pill that the majority of older Americans and potentially British people too, although I don't, I don't know the demographics there, that the older Americans take to reduce their risk of a future age-related disease. Yeah. In that case, a cardiac disease. I think an aging drug is that. But for multiple age-related diseases at the same time, and that that vision is again has really informed the drugs that we develop. Because again, I'm not doing anything spicy. 
We're not doing anything that would be an expensive, me- like to the gene therapy point of a million yeah. dollars a shot. We're not doing anything like that because the vision that I'm trying to bring to the world, I think those drugs will be very, very effective. I think you can do a lot more with a drug like that. But the vision that I think the world needs, slash I want to focus on, is how do we get the majority of people on a super-duper safe preventative medicine that helps them live a longer, healthier life? And I think if we can get anywhere directly near that, of course, for dogs, maybe for people one day too, it would massively benefit society. This pill for the dogs, is that daily as well? So two of them are daily. Uh, and a delicious beef flavor. <laughs> I was going to say, like, because trying to get a, give a dog a medicine of any kind is can be tricky, depending on the dog. Some dogs just eat everything. We do doggy taste tests, actually. Okay. And fun fact, when a dog does not like the taste of the thing that you've created, they will pee on it. That's actually what I do when I like if something is made. Don't we all? Yeah, exactly. I've had a bad round <laughs> of the barbecue. I just pee all over it. That's what I do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it makes it very clear. It's qualitative to quantitative. Correct. Is there pee? Is there not? Um, but two of them are going to be or are flavored in this way. So these pills, if you could smell I them, see. smell like beef. And right. then the third one is a dissolving implant. So things that's popped in between the shoulder blades, I similar see. to our microchip, yeah. um, that dissolves over four to six months. That's because it's more preventative. So that way the pet parent can just give it and go. Got you. All right. You've been super generous with your time. I'm going to let you get back to more important matters. But <laughs> I wish you all the luck. And very, very, se- very selfishly, I look forward to a drug for our very special Lex Lightning. The best way for us to have the time and capital to work on cat aging drugs would be getting our dog aging drugs to market. So exactly. we will we will run as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and the bunnies. Don't forget the bunnies. Don't and the horses, of course. And the cows. Let's add cows in there. Yeah, exactly. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Celine for taking the time. I want to thank you all for the ratings, for the reviews, for listening, for telling your friends and neighbors about the pod, for reaching out. Um A couple of you reached out about something we discussed last week about there is, in fact, some AI in radiology that is being used as we speak. So I am going to follow up on that because I think it's really interesting. So thank you for that. And yeah, that is it for me this week. I'm writing about AI because, of course, I am. So do check that out in the paper this weekend at thetimes.co.uk or actually in the physical paper. You can find me on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it. Thank you, as ever, as always, for listening. I really do appreciate it. Have a fantastic weekend, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.